This morning, I want to tell you as your pastor and as a preacher that I don't want to preach without you here. This is the hardest thing I've ever done as a preacher. I want to see your faces. I want to know that you're actually hearing. I want to see your faces light up with encouragement. And I want to see you cry because it really is true. We really do suffer. I want to feel weak and see in your tears that you feel weak too. I want to see lights turning on in minds and notes being written in journals. I want to see you empathize with me as I'm trying to bring truths that are greater than our imaginations into simple human words, things that we have not seen and make them known through the revelation of the scriptures. This morning, I wish I could see you. Uh, I want to be with you. I want to be together under one word. I, I just want you to know that. And know that my prayer is, Lord, let us see one another again. But this is our hope and plea. Not that we would see one another again in an elementary school cafeteria, though David promised that he would never again complain about squished brownies on the floor. Our hope and our plea is that we will see one another on that day when we see our Savior Jesus Christ on his throne face to face. This is our hope and plea. Of this we can be absolutely confident. It is our hope and the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us pray together. Lord God, we do cry out to you that we want to see one another. You are the great and glorious reward. And you have given to us, your people, a people. You've given to us a church. And Lord, we long for your good gift. And so, Lord, we ask that you would restore our embodied fellowship. And we are confident, we are confident whether now or one day we will be restored in uninterrupted fellowship for all of eternity. Lord, we pray that in the next few moments together as we turn to the scriptures, that you would work in our midst, that your word would work for our transformation, our encouragement, and in the equipping us for the ministry of reconciliation. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope that you have already turned with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We have been now in the second week of being in chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, as we continue our sermon series through this beautiful letter of 2 Corinthians filled with so much encouragement and hope in the gospel. Last week, we spent our time mostly in the first paragraph of our passage this morning. I shared that the purpose of this whole passage is to persuade the believers in Corinth, and by extension all believers, to live our lives in light of the transformation that the gospel has worked in all believers. 
Because at the very core of the reality of the gospel is the reality that Christ has loved us sufficiently and sacrificially. This means that we must live our lives, lives that are concerned for the spiritual vitality and fellowship of our fellow believers and of our neighbors. We left off with these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. Today, we continue with Paul's thought in those remaining words in, chapter, in verse 14 and on into the next paragraph. And what we will see is how Jesus' work, particularly his death and resurrection, how it controls us because it has revealed to us a whole new creation reality, which changes how we understand and see everyone and everything. So we begin really in verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for all, the passage tells us. Now, I've mentioned this before in the past, so I don't want to get too off track by spending too much time here, but this is one of those times in the Bible where we understand the word all is in reference to all those who are being addressed by the letter. That is, it is not an all-inclusive, unqualified all. And this is a very normal and natural way that we all use this word. Paul is referring to the church that he's addressing in the letter. That is, all the church, all of the redeemed for whom Christ died, their death has been died for them in their place. So that when they die, they do not receive the curse that is the condemnation that once accompanied death. But all who are the redeemed, for whom Christ died. Our death has already been died when Jesus died on the cross. Our death is dead. So all that remains for us when we die is the life that Christ has secured for us by his resurrection. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's what it says really in the next words. Those who live for him no longer live for themselves. If our death has been died in our place, we no longer need to strive according to the flesh to rescue ourselves. So many implications. We don't need to hoard. We don't have to fight with our neighbor. We don't have to try to justify ourselves to look good. We don't have to prove that our lives are valuable. We don't have to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Because we know tomorrow we live. We live. And we live for him for 
their sake, who for their sake died and was raised. We've been freed from rescuing and preserving our own lives that are all costs so that we might give up our lives in the flesh to live for the things that are of the Spirit. As we'll see, this becomes a call, a commission, and a creative reality of our God that we are now servants of the ministry of reconciliation. Now, as we move into the next paragraph then, it begins with these words. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. From now on, therefore. Notice how the passage begins. It begins with therefore. In light of the gospel that has just been proclaimed in verses 14 and 15, in light of what we have concluded, there is a, a something that has been revealed to us. There is a change of our thoughts and our sights and our reckoning that we have moved from those who regard according to the flesh to those who regard in light of what has been concluded in the gospel. Notice that what has changed is how we regard others. The work of Christ in the gospel has changed our objective view of reality. So that if we want to see the world clearly, objectively, through a lens and perspective of truth, we must look at the world as a world in which Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead. And friends, that changes Everything, the death and resurrection of Jesus, even changes how we regard Jesus himself. Look at the way it says it in the passage. In the second half, verse 16, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now we have to get into Paul's mind here. He isn't talking about how unbelievers today view Jesus. He's talking about how the first century person and probably specifically how the first century Jewish person thought of him. Well, Jesus was a threat to the religious establishment. He was a crazy charlatan. He was one of a long line of self-proclaimed messiahs. He was an interesting challenge or a riddle but not a legitimate authority. What Paul is saying is that if it were not for the death and resurrection of Jesus, we would continue to think of Jesus in this way. But because of his death and because of his resurrection, he has brought about a whole new redeemed creation. And with that new creation comes a whole new way of thinking about the world. This is why wherever true, biblical Christianity is present in a culture. It changes the way the believers live and see and operate within that culture. Really, the early church is one of the greatest examples of this, where many Greeks and Romans were discarding babies to the curb and doing nothing about the orphan suffering in the streets The believers were taking these children into their homes at cost to themselves. This is the same thing that's happening in Mongolia and in South Africa and in many of our own homes. 
the way we see the world from the early church through today has truly transformed our seeing of the world by the gospel. We know that we have been adopted into the family of God, God the Father, through Christ the Brother. Therefore, we are free to seek and save those who are lost and bring them into our homes in the hope that we would ultimately bring them to the Father as well. Or the church in times of pestilence that has gone as partners in the gospel to use our skills in hospitals and homes to bring healing and to proclaim the gospel of hope. I rejoice and I pray as I hear of believers, men and women, who continue to labor in hospitals today in great danger because the the death and resurrection of Jesus has changed our view of the world. Or believers who, instead of bringing, binging on entertainment and streaming into our homes, believers who are writing words of encouragement and truth, praying through lists of those who are suffering and in danger. Believers who, instead of binging on entertainment, are searching the scriptures for truth and hope, are leading families and shepherding young hearts. All of this labor is because we have concluded that Christ has died and has risen, and it changes everything. It changes how we see everything, And it changes how we live in the world. Specifically, in verse 17, Paul tells us, it changes our understanding that there is a new creation reality. Look at verse 17 with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let us ask The fact that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the grave, how does this change our view of the world? It's not just that you, as an individual, are a new creation. It is that in Christ, you have entered with all who are in Christ into a new creation reality. What is this reality? The reality is that Christ reigns glorious and supreme. It's that death is not loss, for we have a house eternal in the heavens. It is that we do not need to judge those around us, for there is already a judge on the throne. Do you see how seeing, according to a biblical perspective of reality, in light of the gospel, changes our view of reality? We no longer need to fear judgment but we can live to please God so much more. And so what I would call you to do in light of the fact that the gospel changes the way that we ought to think of new creation reality, I challenge you, search the scriptures in prayer for the implications of the gospel for how we see the world. In that way, we would truly be transformed in the renewing of our mind. We could see rightly. Now, how about this for an implication? The things that used to divide us, according to the flesh, the old creation, these things have been removed. 
so that we may be reconciled not only to God, but to one another. The passage says we no longer regard one another according to the flesh. We no longer regard one another as natural-born American citizens versus immigrants. Fundamentally different in worth and ability because of skin color. Divided by class and social standing. Segregated into age groupings, unequal in value as men and women. No, we have entered into and have become a new creation, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that our new creation vision has become the proclamation of the loud voice on the throne of heaven in Revelation 21.3, which says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, that is new creation reality. And it transforms everything of our vision of the world. Now, verses 18 and 19 are so important for us, especially the first words of verse 18. Look at it with me. All this is from God. All this is from God. Now, if you continue, all this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled himself, us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, that is a beautiful phrase, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, but we're skipping something if that's all that we hear. Notice this, all this, what is the all this that is from God? Well, the all this that is from God in verse 18 is two things. First of all, God has reconciled us to himself. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, just in case we missed it, he says the same thing again in verse 19. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Really, he says the same thing twice. He's reconciling the world to himself. And then he says, let's be clear. This means, the means of reconciliation is that in Christ's sacrifice, he does not count their trespasses against them. It's not that just that he says, you know what, all that judgment stuff, I'm just not a judgmental God. Don't worry about it. It's that in Christ, he does something such that our trespasses are not credited to us any longer. That's what it means to be reconciling the world to himself. And then secondly, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. These two things, reconciling us and then giving us the ministry of reconciliation. The passage begins, though, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we must ask the question, how is this from God? It says, all this is from God. Well, it says it twice, actually. Just like it gives us the two things that God has done, he tells us how he did it. Two times. Who? Through Christ. This is how he's done it. 
He repeats the idea in verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling. What we've concluded all the way back in verses 14 and 15. Our conclusion is the means by which he reconciles and gives the ministry of reconciliation. So we ought to remember this. We are not reconcilers. We get so excited as if the whole point of this passage is that we have this ministry of reconciliation. But that's only half the story. And most importantly, it's the second half of the story. The first half is that God in Christ has reconciled us to himself. God is the reconciler. The church doesn't reconcile anyone. I don't think that can be oversaid. When it says that we have the ministry of reconciliation, it means that we are servants, literally ministers of God's reconciling work. We are servants of the good news. We are servants who proclaim the gospel. God reconciles. Why is this important? Especially these days, had many conversations with many believers in a variety of circumstances. And there's some phrases that I keep hearing, phrases especially from pastors and leaders, and some of them concern me. They seem pretty simple. They seem kind of benign, like you can understand what they're really saying, but there is something about their words that I think betrays a mistaken view of ministry. Words like, we need to keep people connected, or How do we keep our people as if the church belongs to pastors? No, the church belongs to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Let me try to rephrase those sentences in light of the truth that all this is from God. How about this one? We need to keep people connected. What if instead, in light that all this is from God... We say, as a people who have been given the ministry of reconciliation, we need to remind people that we are a new creation in Christ, reconciled to God and one another. We keep no one connected. We remind one another that our connection is as the redeemed people of Christ, and so it is irrevocable. We are connected. In Christ, we need to keep our people. Well, in light of the fact that all this is from God, instead we need to remind one another that God's people, as God's people, God has reconciled us to himself. And so we therefore belong to him. And he has given us under shepherds to care for the flock. But the flock belongs to the good shepherd. We need to get people to help each other, I have heard said. Well, what if, more biblically, what if paying attention to even the Apostle Paul's own approach, we need to remind God's people that because Christ died for them, they no longer need to strive in the flesh to live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
I'll be honest, as I've spent a lot of time in the last few weeks thinking about these statements that I keep hearing repeated, I think that a lot of the statements are driven by fear. In church leadership conversations, this is what is so-called closing the back door. The idea is that people come to a church meeting, shake a hand, enjoy a service, leave happy and welcomed, and all of this is in an effort to get them to come back. But as if they stay for a while, the fear is that if we don't keep doing a good job, making people feel connected, then they will ultimately slip out the back door and not come back. Now, with a global pandemic that has made it literally impossible for the church to meet and to have public worship services, all the close the back door efforts have been radically compromised. And I'm watching leaders be afraid. And I'm watching churches filled with people be afraid, wondering what is our connection? How are we going to get people? How are we going to keep people? How are we going to make sure that people come back and and when this whole thing is over, that there's still a church at all? But the error is this. The error is to think as we try to close the back door that we are the ones who opened the front door. The subsequent error is that we think that a church meeting is the door that we entered in the first place when actually Christ is the door. The body of Christ, a new creation, a reconciled people, is of what we have entered through Christ, and all this is from God. It is as a people that we gather in the name of Jesus by his gracious call and his provision. I can try to simplify it in this way. If we think that our efforts at kindness are the means by which people enter the church, then we are left also with the thought that our efforts at kindness are the means by which we keep people in the church. Friends, I'm not that kind. I'm just not that friendly of a guy. I can't keep up that kind of pretending. The whole church is going to fall apart if it depends upon you or me to keep it together. When in reality, we are ministers, servants of reconciliation. The only true means of entrance into the church is by grace through faith. Therefore, our job is not human kindness that is according, that's an according to the flesh sort of thinking. Our job is to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to live lives that are informed and transformed, literally reconciled to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that it is clear that entrance into the community of the church is by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It is the grace of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection that has reconciled us to God and to one another. And so now, no matter what happens, we are a new creation. This is what is true. And it is irrevocable because Jesus Christ has already died. He has already risen and he's already on his throne. We belong together. 
not because of our effort, but by the grace of God. All this is from God. And the ministry of reconciliation is to proclaim that good news and to remember it over and over again as the church. Years ago, I was in a leadership meeting in a church, and we had a backdoor problem in the church. The idea was that we had a lot of people who were coming, visiting, even hanging out for a while, and then after a little while, we noticed that they would disappear. So there were always guests, but the church was never really growing. The solution that we came up with in that leadership meeting after probably 45 minutes of conversation was that we needed better greeters. We needed to put more people to shake hands and to learn people's names at the door when they came in and when they left. And as I sat there and I listened to the conversation, I proposed that perhaps we don't actually have a greeter problem. To be honest, I think that that church was one of the friendliest churches I've been in, an actually loving community. Perhaps what we had was not a greeter problem, but a transformation problem. Perhaps the people who begin to engage with our church are not actually being confronted by the gospel of grace and a call to faith. And so we are left with nothing more than the works of the flesh to try to keep them. Now, here in Florida, the entertainment capital of the world, what hope do we have to compete with the world in a fleshly way of thinking? We just can't beat Disney at their skill in keeping people coming back. We can't beat Netflix on the one hand, and then a culture that's obsessed with health and appearance on the other hand. We can't get people up in the morning morning after binging another season the night before, and we can't interrupt people's jogging and beauty sleep routine just to get them up on Sunday mornings. Worse yet, let's say we do manage to get them to come anyway by some fleshly means. We make them feel like they're a part of the church, but they're never truly a part of the redeemed. This is the problem. Friends, that's not a ministry of reconciliation. That is a supposed church serving as an escort to the gates of hell. The true ministry of the gospel is from God, by God, through Christ. Because all of this is from God, and God has done these two things. He's reconciled us to himself, and he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore ambassadors for Christ, verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Our business is to make appeal, to appeal to the gospel. What is the appeal? Be reconciled to God. There's no longer any barrier to our reconciliation to God. No more barrier, no more death, no more curse. The barrier of your sin, the curse of eternal death, the judgment of the law, all these things have been removed by Christ. All that remains for you and I is to hear the good news and to believe. All that really remains is faith. This is our ministry, to proclaim that good news. And so, in our remaining moments, there is no better use of the remainder of our time than to preach the gospel.
This is what God has done for us, for our sake. That's why verse 20 and 21 are so important. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there is a beautiful parallel passage for us. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. We'll have it on the screen here. I encourage you to bookmark it in your Bibles. Perhaps make a note of it there in your margin. It walks through the same reasoning. It's good to look at these two beside one another. Jesus, who is himself God, took on flesh. And our passage this morning tells us, he knew no sin. First Peter, verse 22 there, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now the next verse is just as important for it gives us this reality in light of the judgment seat of Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What kind of judge is Jesus Christ? He is one who knows what it is to be tempted. What kind of judge do we have on the throne? We have one who knows what it is to walk in the Spirit. He knew no sin, our passage tells us, but God made him to be sin who knew no sin. As First Peter, in verse 24, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I bear my sin no more, not one. Even my prayer of confession is not my way of taking my sin upon myself. It's my confession that my sin during the course of the week is real sin, actually wrong before a holy God. And it really is born by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why our prayer of confession is a twofold confession. It's the holiness of God and the sinfulness of my own human heart. But also the confession that Jesus Christ and his gospel is sufficient to bear that sin so that I bear it no more. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the that. This is the result. This is the conclusion of the matter. As first Peter puts it, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Recently, again, I was very disheartened. I was, I asked a small group of pastors who were talking about spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation, and they were talking about the things that we can do to grow in faith. Good things, even biblical things, things like practicing Sabbath rest, connection with others, silent prayer. But when I pressed them in asking the question, what does the cross of Jesus have to do with all of these spiritual disciplines? After asking the question multiple times in multiple ways, the best answer I could get out of them was, of course the cross is essential. It's an example of God's love and sacrifice. The cross is a model 
for how we are to experience life. Yeah, those are partially true. Yes, we are to take up our cross daily and to follow after Jesus, but no, the answer is insufficient. The answer is essentially to the question of our growth in Christ is this. God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Every other answer is insufficient at best. Our righteousness does not come as the result of spiritual disciplines. It's not the result of looking at Jesus as our example of how to live. We are not reconciled to God because we try to be like Jesus. We are reconciled to God, made righteous because Jesus became like us. And then he took his sin upon our sin, upon himself. And by a unilateral act of grace, he gave us righteousness. This is the good news of reconciliation to God. Every spiritual discipline that is at our disposal is not given to us so that we can do this for ourselves. Spiritual disciplines are given to us so that we might become disciplined in remembering that God alone has done this. All this is from God. We find peace because the work of the gospel reconciliation is finished. It's complete. So this morning, I would appeal to you I would join the Apostle Paul and the appeal to my own soul on the basis of the concluded, perfect, sufficient, completed work of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For this is the gift of grace that he has purchased for you. And you, who have been reconciled by the grace of God in Christ, remember Remember that you are among those who have been reconciled and it's irrevocable. And knowing this, go with the news that you yourself have received. And know that this news is sufficient. Nothing needs to be added to it. Not only to bring the lost into Christ's church, but to keep them. It is the grace of Christ that is keeping you. For we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Heavenly Father, thank you for preaching this good news to our minds and our hearts today. Thank you that the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has shone into our hearts so that we might know the reconciliation that we have in Christ, 
so that our view of the world might be transformed so that we might know how to live walking in step with the Spirit in this world. Thank you for again reminding us of what is true, that we don't have to be afraid of losing our, the connection that we have as the church because it's not because of the labor of the church. It's because of the labor of the one who has redeemed us. We are together in Christ. It's for that reason that we long not only to be reunited here, not only to text each other more, see each other on some social media platform. Our longing is to see each other at the foot of the throne before the one who has made us one. And that vision, that glorious vision, compels us into the ministry of reconciliation. That our lives would be reconciled to this new creation reality. But also that our neighbors would know the good news of Jesus Christ, not only know that we have been kind, not only know that we have been transformed, not only that we have lived in light of the gospel, but that they would know the gospel itself and so be transformed and brought into that number who will bow their knee before the throne. Lord, we long for this. We long to see the miracle of transformation in our lives and in the lives of the lost in our midst. We know that if this is the work that is done, all this is from God. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This time in our service, we turn to communion. Every week, we go to this time of remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ in communion. In these days, we have made the decision not to encourage households to take communion at home or to do so in any other way, but rather the elders have chosen to encourage the church to that we would partake spiritually by remembering, by hearing the scriptures, by remembering that this is true and it is what, it's what our communion is. That our community isn't our gathering. Our community isn't our song. Our communion isn't our leadership or the the name or brand of our church. Our communion is in Christ alone. And we long to be together to celebrate again so that the church might, in the context of worship and in a very embodied way, walk together to that same table again. In the meantime, we remember, and we even remember that there will a day become a day where this is utterly unnecessary to remember Christ in that way because we'll see him face to face. In the meantime, our prayer is that these words from the word, from 1 Corinthians 11, would encourage the church as we remember the communion that we as the church have with our Savior, Jesus Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.